When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am here with Michael Walker, my co-host. How are you doing, Walker? Hello. I am your other co-host, Mark Pickney, and I got to say, checking over my notes, I am super excited to talk to you t- this week about games. All the games? All the games. Short games, long games, bow-legged games, all of... Oh, wait, wait, sorry. The Gibbons informing me that there's been some sort of mistake and that my preparation is all off base. Uh-oh. Is your key stuck again? Yeah, uh, I'd like to buy a vowel. Uh-oh. So we're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the, the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic this week, our topic this week is adventure games. Adventure! If only. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Last year, we reviewed a game called El Grande? The Big. The Biggin. <laughs> So it's has the big reprint come out for it yet? It's been announced, but no. has it actually has okay. It's not in wide distribution yet. If, if there may be some European markets that already have it, but I haven't seen it hit stateside. And if it is, it's 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 not really available much in a widespread way. So the big daddy of area control. This is what it's all about. I see what you did there. El Grande. Yeah, played it since we reviewed it. Perennial classic. Just it, it, it it's one of those things where honestly, it's as good as everyone says. I mean. Don't think there's much else to say. <laughs> yeah, it always hits, but comes back to the table. Yeah, good at different player counts, regardless of what other people say. Well, oh, no, I didn't no. say all player. Counts. Okay, I said many player counts. Mm. I, I as in five or four. That's many. Okay, <laughs> it's more than one. <laughs> Fair enough. Point taken. Yes, yeah, so El Grande frequently imitated, rarely repeated. Uh, one of the progenitors of both the card-driven format and a very majority, more broadly, El Grande. By Wolfgang Kramer and Richard Ulrich. Originally published in 1999, soon to be reprinted. And now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I played Age of Innovation again. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was discussing how, despite the fact that he's big into board games, there are a couple of the sort of perennial classics of the genre that he is not very familiar with. One of the ones he mentioned was Agricola. And I'm like, oh, I'd happily play Agricola any time. And the other, he said, well, that's that, that one that I frequently see in stores, uh, Terra, Terra Mystica. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm very curious about that. I was like, well, well, son, I've got Age of Innovation in my trunk. You want to play Age of Innovation? So we played Age of Innovation, and it, it did make me appreciate more the, the the details about how it differs from Wait, Terra Mystica. Isn't that how a drug deal goes down? It's like, <laughs> I've always wanted to try cocaine. <laughs> Well, my friend, come over to my trunk. Is that how it works? I, I'm not sure. It sounds like a drug deal. Just, I don't just have a taste of this. I'm not this innovation here. I don't think I've ever consumed illegal substances, All but right. I don't think that's typically how it goes. Okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> uh, that raises several questions that I will not ask. Seems us. 
So I've, I'm really appreciating the customizability of various factions. Like, for example, I play the Illusionists, and the Illusionist faction ability is that every time they do a power action, they get a discount and they get points. But by default, they don't have any power generation. And indeed, it happened to be paired with a uh, terrain faction that doesn't have a particularly advantageous starting power distribution. But one of the palaces that was available to be drafted generated a lot of power. And so I, I do the thing that is very, very dangerous, but I think in this case it paid off. I rushed to get the palace very early. I believe it might have even been in round two, uh, or certainly no later than round three. And consequently, I was generating lots and lots and lots of power. I was able to ping the ability very often. Of course, this too is a variant dependent on the number of players, right? Because the number of power actions that's available to you in Age of Innovation are fixed, regardless of whether you're playing a solo game or all the way up to five players. And so I, I, I don't know if this is going to lead to the kind of structural imbalances that the hardcore players of Terra Mystica complain about. I think with good reason. If you're going to be playing a Euro game, you know, 50 to 100 times like some people do, if there are serious factional imbalances, that's going to be a problem and it might rankle people. Especially if you're doing it competitively, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, the people who track wins and losses, who yeah. care about such things, it can, it can absolutely stick in some people's crop. That having been said, playing like a monkey, as I, that's the only way I know how to play, and that is not offensive to Gibbons. Gibbons, remember, are apes. Gotcha. But playing like a monkey, it doesn't really bother me. It rather allowed me to sort of navigate the available things to draft and, and customize my faction as it came out. Now, did it address my fundamental concerns about Age of Innovation that we expressed when we played it the first time? Not at all. It's enjoyable, but it's way over long. And at the end of the day, I can't help but feel like I've, I've done spent a whole lot of time not doing very much. It's like, oh, I've, I've built some workshops and some Maybe got my palace out and uh, 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 three points here and five points. At, uh, uh, all right. And that's fine. If it were half the length, I think it might be one of my favorite games, honestly. But as it is, you know, for three hours of just constantly scraping out this action to do this action to do this other action, just so I can get the two tools necessary so I can put out that trading post. Ugh. It's well, it's extremely well designed, but it's one of those designs that I respect more than enjoy. I was happy to show it to somebody else because they were very, very curious about the, the system. And I do like various elements of the core system that is iterated through Terra Mystica all the way now to Age of Innovation. Uh, but ultimately, I think this is one of those systems that I think I've seen done a number of times, and I don't think it's ever really going to please me. How do you think they walked away from it? Well, what was strange was they commented that, that they enjoyed it, and they were they felt that their curiosity has been, had been satisfied and they would be eager to play again. Uh, they commented that it was the most complicated game they'd ever played, which I found surprising, given that their favorite game is Mage Knight. And I personally, that just led me to reflect on the fact that different people parse complexity in different ways. To my mind, Mage Knight is vastly more complicated, well, not maybe not vastly, but significantly more complicated than Age of Innovation. Age of Innovation, at the end of the day, is relatively clean in terms of the stuff. You, there's lots of options to be done about things, but the sheer number of interactions in Mage Knight and the sheer number of special abilities and the way different sites work and the way different movement options work to get to those sites and how sometimes when you assault, you go next to it. Oh, is it day or is it night? Oh, is this one of the places where I can bring in uh, uh, allies? Oh, can I not activate the ally in this context? Oh, etc. I, I feel it's a lot of corner cases in Mage Knight, whereas in a game like Age of Innovation, everything is front-loaded. Everything you need to interact with almost all the time. 
I disagree because to, I, I think it's quite the opposite. In Mage Knight, you necessarily have to be interacting with those edge cases. Every time something shows up on the map, you need to account for what that map thing is going to do. Whereas with Age of Innovation, fundamentally, the core thing that you're doing, again, is you're just building these buildings. That's what you're doing. And building a workshop, building a trading post, building any of the buildings is very straightforward. Understand how shovels work, pay some number of tools and money. There you go. You build a building. It's true. But what, what ramifications or what is that going to lead? to or why are you doing those things or how is that going to help you in the future yeah but all of those questions apply to the mage knight situation equally i think maybe all right well anyway that was age of innovation now walker do you think this leads naturally to a segue of any kind no okay well then pick a random game we we played last week we played mage knight okay this is designed by vlado chavadal and put out by whiz kids and it is a a favorite of ours we uh we play it i don't i shouldn't say we play it often but it's been it's it has stayed in our collections for quite a while. It has a lot of expansions, and one of the big questions is when you bring it out to the table, what type of Mage Knight are we going to play? Is it going to be competitive? Is it going to be a type of cooperative? Are we going to be fighting a, a boss? How many castles are we going to take over? How long do we want to play? What kind of map do we want to play at? So sometimes that can be a, a barrier to get it to the table, but usually... A lot of times when I play, I just start putting out map tiles and just go from there. Because <laughs> really, when you think about you're it, you're a freewheeling anarchist, Walker. Because usually, when you think about it, that's usually what you're just going to end up doing anyway. You're going to be exploring all the green tiles and then getting to the brown tiles and then defeating the cities. Why mess around? Just get to it. Well, but that's the con- you've described the con- the conquest scenario. Well, yeah. Well, then what? <laughs> so I suppose. <laughs> Which is kind of, I think the perception is, rightly, that it is the sort of default scenario. So I don't think you've suggested something half so revolutionary as you implied. And that is indeed what we played. We played the co-op conquest. I think the biggest barrier to getting Mage Knight back to the table is, number one, it's so similar to every other game. So we feel like we play it all the time. And number two... We, uh, it's, it's, it's long. Uh, and we played it this time with three. Three is the most I'm willing to play it with. I, I've played it before with four, never again. And I think the three is pushing it. I'd much rather play it solo or with just two people. No, and even with just sort of how the map works out. If you have four, usually there's one person that gets, is getting left out or it's back and forth. And yes. two, two people are slightly left out with three. You have like one going up each side, one down the middle, and you can sort of divvy up the bennies. I guess right, and that's when, that's when playing co-op, despite the fact that we had a, a relatively good division nearly, near the early and late bits, there were occasions where we got in each other's way, which is awkward, because getting from point A to point B in Mage Knight can be difficult. It is one of the many challenges you have to overcome. But it's well implemented in terms of the card. The card management is brilliant. The hand management, the card, the card management, the way deck building is implemented. It's. Uh, it, I think it was one of the very first games that looked at deck building and said, "This is what you can do with deck building," and it just blew open the paradigm in a significant way and in a very helpful way. And uh, getting in people's way is not fun. Uh, the alternative is to play competitively, and then you can either play with the, I think, garbage PvP rules, or you can play where you're just blocking each other, and neither one of them is very satisfying. So co-op is usually the way to go. The dummy player is very, very easy to manage. It's just a clock. There's also an app that runs it just fine. And so th- that's indeed how we played. We played the co-op full conquest scenario. It took us about four hours, all told. With two players, I think it would have taken two and a half to three. I mean, really, just adding more players just makes the game longer. And Mage Knight has one of the 
uh, paradigmatic issues I have with adventure games, which is sooner or later they boil down to a gut check. You have to make some sort of vaguely holistic analysis of whether or not you're able to do the thing. And fortunately, one way in which Midnight makes it slightly better is the thing that you're trying to do only shows up relatively late in the game anyway. And the thing you're trying to do in Conquest is to sack cities. Sacking cities is hard. There's a large stack of very scary things that's willing to bite your head off when you're going to do that. And the game can be overlong, on even longer than the, you know, two to four hours, if you're overly cautious and you don't know whether you're ready to go sack a city yet. Not that I can blame anybody. It's a tough decision to make. You look at those numbers, like, that, I, I can't generate 26 attack in a single hand of cards. Like, well, sometimes you can, and you don't know it. Anyway, we've talked a lot about Mage Knight. It doesn't hit the table often, as you say, but it's frequently in our thoughts. And yes. many games get compared to it unfavorably for those other games. I think it is a bona fide classic. And here's one thing that I will point out. So Age of Innovation is a relatively uh, contemporary design and in many ways has lots of contemporary design aesthetics and contemporary approaches to components. Mage Knight, on the other hand, uh, which was released over 10 years ago, the thing is, is that we've, we've got this sort of natural assumption about a correlation between a game's weight to its setup time. And some games recently have very much borne that out. Voidfall comes to mind. But then there's Mage Knight. I was, I, you know, especially after coming on the heels of Age of Innovation, it's like, okay, gotta set this thing up. It's like, oh, wait, we're done. <laughs> There's hardly any setup to do. Shuffle that deck, shuffle that deck, make, make a supply, put up some tiles. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's not trivial, but given the, uh, given the weight of the game and given the weight of other games, a lot of medium to heavy euros that have, you know, 12 different piles of chits and tokens that need to be shuffled, it's comparatively nothing. It's true. And had we played like a second time, like immediately sooner, and we'd, you know, be right up to date with how to play, it would take even faster. Yes, there were there were some, uh, we, we didn't even do any sort of refresher at the beginning. In right. hindsight, that was possibly a mistake. There were some issues, some core issues that some players had forgotten, like how often can I play a card sideways? How many dice can I take from the source? Stuff like that. Stuff that I, I, I mean, no disrespect or insult, that I had assumed everyone kind of remembered, but that some people didn't. And that's fine. We, we go through a lot of games, and, and it is what it is, and some people remember details, and some people don't. And it varies by game. Anyway, so probably next time a 15-minute refresher would be, would be salutary. And so I'll, I'll take the blame for that. So that was Mage Knight, the board game, always a joy to get back to. As I commented on a recent episode of Bloat, I'm going to try to make more of an effort to make sure that a month doesn't go by without revisiting some of the some of the titles from the canon. A month without the canon is a mistake. Agreed. Got to play another game of Gnar. This is by Thomas Dupont and Bombix. A marvelous filler. 20 to 30 minutes. Race to points. And I, I'm always reminded when playing Gnar how subtle the timing can be. Because a less well-designed game, I think, would be build up your tableau, build up your tableau, build up your tableau, explosion of points, game end. And this isn't even a question of duration. NAR actually is more like knowing when to build up your tableau and knowing when to go for the points. Because sometimes you're going to have a couple of major explosions of points. Sometimes you just build up that tableau and, and pumping the tableau is your explosion of points on occasion. And then if you can then parlay that into yet more points, that's very key to success. 
But knowing the ebb and flow, reacting to what's available, knowing when to pump the cards, knowing when to buy other cards, it really is marvelous given its weight, given its duration. NAR gets a lot of things really right. I was very, very glad to come back to it, and everyone else was pleased to see it again back too. NAR. Yeah, easy to teach. Amazing game. Did a stream again this week, every Saturday, 1230. We're streaming. This week, we did The Fox Experiment. This is Elizabeth Hardgraves and Jeff Fraser's newest game. It is put out by Pandasaurus Games. It's based off the Russian uh, fox experiments they did because they bred foxes for fur and they were a bit vicious. They wanted to make them friendlier, so they started to do selective breeding. Well, the hypothesis was, the, the scientists doing the experiment, I, I did a little bit of reading on it, it's very, it's very interesting. The hypothesis was that if you bred for behavioral traits, morphological and physiological changes would necessarily follow. And it turns out that that hypothesis was largely correct. You get droopy ears, you get mottled fur, you get differently shaped skulls, even though they weren't breeding for those characteristics, they were just breeding for friendliness and eagerness to interact with humans. And that's what you're doing in the game. Every, you you draft, the I think the hook of the game or the interesting part of the game is the initial draft because you need to draft a male and a female and... A vixen walker. Sorry. They're called vixens. I'm sorry, sorry. And, uh, and sort of turn order and or an ability for that turn. And so, and you get to choose them in any order. So it's one of those games where, well, almost everyone's picked a female. I can leave that one there because it's going to stay. Right. So I'm going to pick another, something else instead. So the male has a certain number of dice and so does the female. And then you get your special dice that you have and you roll them and you're matching these symbols. Some of the dice have, you know, one and a half symbols or just a half. And so you're lining up all these dice and they all correspond to those traits that you were talking about. Spots on the face, floppy ears fur uh an appealing bark and so and then when you line up all your dice you take your card and it's actually a dry erase marker and you start ticking off all of these results that you got and you present your fox for that round it's like okay well i have a friendliest friendliness factor of x uh-huh. because i've ticked off that many boxes and then they go up and they're part of the next draft that you can make they can be they're going to be the next mother or father and depending on how many ticks they got, they're going to get their own dice and they're also going to get these trait tokens. And then you use these trait tokens to give yourself more abilities, which are going to give you more dice, which let you also breed more than just one fox a turn, gives you more objectives, all sorts of different things you get to unlock on your board. I think in all, it is a great game because everyone's doing stuff at the same time. It flows very well. It, it, it moves very quickly, and is you get to roll a lot of dice. Rolling dice is fun. It is. You get to roll the dice. You get to match your symbols. Lots of good things happening. Special a bit like objectives on the left hand side of the board to sort of you know match if you know getting columns. They they change up every game, so it could be almost anything from having certain number of tokens on your board to all sorts of different things. There's a bunch of special cards you can get that give you abilities, or you save them for points at the end. How many rounds of drafting is there? Six. Great. I believe there's six. Okay. And near the end, it gets a little long. Oh. I mean, no, I shouldn't say that. I just mean that because it's happening at the same time, but just like the last few rounds, because some players have three foxes they can breed. So what they do is they they roll the dice, they fill out their fox, and then they roll the dice again and fill out another one and then roll the dice. I see. So that might take a little while, but eh, all in all, it's pretty awesome. I'm looking forward to trying it again. The Fox Experiment. It's been a good run, Walker. We've been doing this for almost 10 years. Agreed. 
I'm afraid you're going to have to find a new co-host because oh. I'm about to get canceled hardcore. Uh-oh. I'm afraid. Look, I, I, I was tempted. I was sincerely tempted to try to uh, mince my words or. Uh, I could have sworn I, I, that it was going to be me that did this. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I really strongly dislike Android Netrunner. I'm sorry. This is it. We're, we're done. Uh-oh. I can hear the angry replies being penned as we speak. Why is my f- computer blowing up? <laughs> I just, I, okay, okay, okay. So I played Android Netrunner all of twice. Once shortly after it came out when I strongly disliked it. And once again this week when I really strongly disliked it. <laughs> oh, he talked you into it. Did he? he likes it so much and you agree. No, no, this is not. It. This is not. Okay, there are a number of locals that are big, big fans of Android Netrunner. A lot of people love Android Netrunner. This isn't even the local that you're probably thinking oh, of. This right. is somebody else. And when he suggests, oh, like, yeah, we can play one of these, Android Net, it's like, please show me Android Netrunner again. So there was one thing that I'd just completely forgotten about the design, and that is, and this is, I'll start with it because it's the least salient to my lack of enjoyment of it. It's obnoxious use of keywords. You don't get a hand of cards, Walker. You can have a headquarters or R&D or your archives or stuff like that. Like, look, there's only one publisher that I'm willing to let get away with stuff like that, and that is Devious Weasel Games. All right? I'm, I'm not a fan of it when Devious Weasel does it, but I'm willing to give them a pass. <laughs> Moving on. Fundamentally, Android Netrunner is all about action efficiency. It is just about action. It's an action to take a dollar. It's an action to take a card. It's an action to play a card. It's an action to play the card that gives you lots of dollars, but you can get in those dollars that saves you actions. You can just blunt force almost anything with actions if you want to. And so what it comes down to is, do you have the card that will save you the actions when you need it? Now, some of this certainly comes down to deck construction, but I was also reminded why I really don't like deck construction games of this ilk much anymore. Because if you're building a 45-card deck and you're not going to be going through all of it in a given game in all likelihood, what are you doing with yourself? Like, seriously, like what's going on here? Like, what, what you're basically doing is playing with some sort of weird probabilistic scattershot opportunity. It's like, well, am I going to get mana screwed or not? Well, I don't know. Here's the right formula. This is the right ratio to follow. But that's, that helps you avoid getting mana screwed more often, but it doesn't prevent the problem entirely. Honestly, one of the reasons why I completely got ruined for deck construction games of this ilk are games like Blue Moon and Ordis Regni. You're going to go through your entire deck in all likelihood in those games. You're going to be able to hold on to the cards and set the combos that you want rather than be in a position, as I was several times in Android Netrunner, like, hmm, I'm out of money. I don't have any of the cards that get me money. Oh, except for this one. It costs, oh, it costs money to do. Okay, I have three actions. I guess I'm spending three actions to get three money. That's my turn. Now, I'm not look, I'm not saying that I played properly, and I'm not saying that I had a good, well-constructed deck, but there I was hating it. <laughs> I mean, that's just where I was. Now, I, I I'm sure there are if if I got deep into the weeds, if I internalize all those silly keywords, if I craft the deck that works for me, if everything starts firing on all cylinders, I'm still at the mercy of what, what comes out when. <sighs> oh wait, here's one. Oh yeah. I'm reading the replies already. Yeah, yeah. Get good. Yeah, yeah. L two P nub. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks. I was waiting for that. Look, if you like your Android Netrunner, I completely respect the passion of the fan base, and I completely respect the fact that there are people sufficiently devoted to the system that has been resurrected several times or resed, if you will. That's another keyword in, oh, gotcha, in Android gotcha. Netrunner, by the way. How clever! I just uh, I I I didn't enjoy any aspect of it, and it did not inspire me to go and craft a better deck to spec. 
I just, I, I have no interest in that class of game anymore. And even in the context of that class of game, I did not enjoy the way Netrunner focuses everything into just a relentless optimization of actions. That's what it is. That's what it boils down to. In my experience, this has been my run at So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much. I anticipate being torn to pieces by an angry, angry mob. That would be uh, meat damage, by the way, oh, in the context gotcha. of... <laughs> Keyword meat. That is Android Netrunner, designed by Richard Garfield and Lucas Litzinger, originally resurrected by Fantasy Flight Games in 2012, later resurrected by other fine people. That is Android Netrunner. I'm, look, I, I, it, it is what it is. More on Android later. Mark, does it have bees? <laughs> Android Netrunner? Yes. I'm sure there is some kind of clever ice or icebreaker involving bees. Well, Apery has bees. <laughs> yes, This it does. is designed by Connie Vogman. And put out by Stonemeyer Games. This is the Stonemeyer's latest uh, output, where you get to play space bees. So, so you have you have your mat, you have your workers. You're putting out your little workers that are sort of like rect, uh, square, sort of d fours as you were, and they're uh, well. I mean, they're d sixes, but two of the faces are occupied by a bee head and a bee butt. It's true. So and you the, get four. You get there are four values to to display on your bee worker, and that that's sort of the strength of their action when they go out. And when they when there are four, they get to do a super duper action. Whew. And so you're 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 upgrading your board by putting out these tiles, farm tiles, and textiles, of course. T- yes, of course. Yes. Well, the honeycomb tiles. Yes, precisely. And. Uh, Instant tiles and, and end game tiles, all sorts of things. Special power tiles. Yeah, lots of cool stuff. And then there's the giant bee, the queen bee. Even. Oh, it's such a nice figure. It's so, so plumpy. It's a, it's a giant plump bee with rocket boosters. It's great. And you move it around this grid and it, and it sort of populates planets with resources and you, and you can get resources. Lots of things going on. You get to do the bee dance. Bee dance is fun. It's true. You get to choreograph bee dances, get get some Bob Fosse on your jazz hands and everything. And I really think I enjoyed playing Apery. Okay. And I think I'm, and I, I want to go back. I think there's lots to do in that game. There's lots of different ways you can purchase tiles. There's tons of different factions you can play or, or leader abilities or however you want to put it. And there's lots to do, lots of different ways to play that game. So I, I have two primary comments about Apiary. One of them is, I think it really highlights one of the things that I commented on when talking about Ceres. If you're making a game, especially if you're going to orient it towards sci-fi in space, you can make it about anything. And Apiary is like, I'm going to make this about far future sapient bees. And to that I say, well done. Like, go for it, right? <laughs> There's no reason not to go for it. And I really appreciate it. The pictures from Quan Chai Moria of little space bees with their little space helmets, adorable. The queen bee miniature, no notes. The, the 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 hexagonal arrangement of your little bee ships, marvelous. Now, I, I think they could have been a little bit more creative in terms of the names of the different factions, but but whatever. That that's just quibbling. The second thing that I will observe is that most of Apiary I found forgettable and pedestrian. I did like the base building aspect because there was both a question of what kind of tile you want. There are endgame scoring, there are instant ones, there are farms, and then there are uh, special powers that are shockingly interesting, uh, frankly, in terms of, of action efficiency. And there's also a spatial element in that 
uh, to a limited extent, where you put them on your base matters and the order in which you purchase them and, and how you arrange them. And that part I thought was the most enjoyable, which is unusual because normally that part of, uh, of a game like this, which is less interactive and more spatial, is usually not my kind of jam. But it's just the rest of the worker placement in Apiary I thought was more or less just fine. One thing about the worker placement that was a little bit more interesting was as opposed to most worker placement games where you want to go where on you know the available space uh, for the purposes of blocking, here you want to go to the hot spaces because you want to get dislodged. Being dislodged by a worker is good and it accelerates the, the, the growth of your bees. In rare circumstances, you might want to wait, but generally speaking, you want a high turnover of bees. And that was kind of cool. Uh, but the rest of it, honestly, like the variable strength of the workers didn't really do much. I d basically, most of the time it was either the worker is a four and something amazing happens or doesn't really matter all that much. I mean, honestly, the difference between a one and a three, meh, mostly it's just how close are you to getting to the four. That, that, so I didn't feel like that was really exploited to its greatest potential. I found a lot of the scoring elements to be very situational in a borderline frustrating way. Like you get a lot of points from these cards called seeds. Getting a seed into play is a satisfyingly involved affair, uh, but a lot of them are, are just really, really limiting. And so you draw them near the end of the game and you might be like, if this is your only seed, score seven points. I'm like, I've already it's slotted the, a seed. the ticket to ride deck. <laughs> yeah, more or less. <laughs> Only in the reverse, because in Ticket to Ride, you might just draw a bunch of cards you've already scored. The seeds mostly are draw a whole bunch of things like, okay, I get this if I don't add any annexes. I've already added two. I get I can score this if it's my only seed. I've already scored a seed. Mm, okay. Well, mine went the other way. It's like, you know, get this many points if you've collected these tokens. It's like, oh, well, I, I collected those tokens. <laughs> so I'm sure, good. Sure, sure. It's just that problem uh, I, I find less noxious, less problematic than the other problem. So I really enjoy dice worker placement games. If you've played Praetor, you might like this as well, because once the bees mature to four, they have to retire, and and you do stuff. That's, that's a whole mechanism. They go to the honeycomb upstate. Yeah. yeah. And it also has an interesting thing about uh, resource generation. You have to place it in certain spots on your home board, and then any excess go to the queen's favor. I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, also, it's got the, the, the increasingly common... A contemporary approach to worker placement where either you put out a worker or you call your workers back. And when you call your workers back, they activate farms. And that's one of the ways to get resources. And interestingly, as a corollary to that, you don't have to ever call them back. You can just keep cycling them ad infinitum. Calling them back is a choice that you make uh, based on various necessities. Well, as long as so. someone keeps bumping them. There were several occasions where I had no choice, where I had no workers. They're all out and they were not bumped. So I had no choice but to call them back. Sure. Fair enough. Some of us played better than you did. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I as, thought it was, as reflected by my score. I thought it was mostly inoffensive with a couple of promising elements. So overall, I'd say it's you know, fair to middling. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Apiary. Apiary. Played a game of Air, Land, and Sea. This is a review copy we got from the designer, John Perry. John Perry, who is the king of small box games, as far as I am concerned. And Air, Land, and Sea unlike uh, some two-player card games I played last week, has a very good element of knowing the deck, because there's only 18 cards. 12 of them are going to be playing in a given round. 
And the best part is you have to know when to st- uh, to stay in and when to get out. Because if you yield the round early, your opponent's not going to get many points. But if you fight to the bitter end, bitter end they're going to get a lot of points and you're going to be in trouble. It's one of those cases where I think, you know, honestly, kind of like in Warfare, if it gets fought to the last uh, to the last play, somebody made, done made a mistake. <laughs> And that that idea of pulling out early, which I very much appreciate from games of Blue Moon, because Blue Moon is is, is also the, the, the Reiner Knizia two-player card game also operates on that principle. And Airland and Sea just gets get things done in a remarkably tight and efficient way. Uh, there's the animal version of Airland and Sea. There's also the, se- the standalone sequel, Spies, License, Supplies. I want to get back to that. I still haven't played the combined version of Airland and Sea, where you play five theaters across both boxes of game. I'm I'm very curious to try that because I suspect it's going to go one of two ways. That is either this is amazing or uh, why did we take a simple game and make it twice as long as it should be? Now I have my suspicions as to which of the two is true, but I have enough faith in John Perry that I really want to see it. I want to see how it looks. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of Airland and Sea. I was very glad to get it back to the table and I like both it and its sequel, Spies, Lies, and Supplies very, very much. That is by John Perry, published by Arcane Wonders in 2018, Airland and Sea, not to be confused with Heroes of Land, Sea, and Air. Is that the order? I think I think it's pronounced. Thank you for that uh, subtle right. nuance to take. So, over. on the subject of interesting card games, I got to try a game called Short and Fruitin, or Shoot the Fruit, or Fruit and Shooter. All right. So Are you serious? A... No. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> what's it actually called? Uh, Shot and Fruitin. Okay. I, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm not sure. It's designed by CTR and put out by Studio Turbine. Hopefully, I'd like to get a real copy. So this is a proxy copy that I made because I can't get a copy. I tried my hardest, and when it does come out, I will probably get it. So this is a trick-taking game with a twist. All the normal things, you must follow suit, except the person who came in second wins the trick. And they take their card and any cards that were played that were off suit. And they go into their scoring pile. And then if at any time someone, you take a, uh, a card into your scoring pile that matches cards you already have, that all can- cancels out. And you play all your cards, usually around 12. And then you score those points that you happen to have. So it all usually breaks down to like the last, the the key rounds are near the end because everyone has less cards that can follow suit. So you're like usually taking a whole bunch of cards into your, into your scoring pile. And that's where it gets interesting. Now, the other crazy twist to this game is as soon as someone breaks 41 points, so goes over 40 points, that will trigger the end of the game. And that person is out. They cannot win. Anyone else that has scored 41 points or more is also out. And the person that wins is the closest to 40 without going over. So the game breaks down into this crazy trying to feed people points, trying to cancel your own points, trying to get just a few. It is it is weird and bizarre. Yeah. And 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 one person and then Huey hated it with every inch of his life. It sounds obnoxious. I loved it. Okay. Other people enjoyed it because they just love trick taking games. Sure. I'm 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 hoping to show this to you. <laughs> so is this Okay, can we play this, but I'm playing NAR? Because I almost always end NAR on a turn with 39 points. <laughs> that's what you want to do? That, that's what, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that is Schottenfruden. 
<laughs> wow. We get to play For Science. This was a two-player game of For Science designed by Eric Royce, who, full disclosure, is a personal friend of mine. The real-time co-op dexterity game. Super niche! But that niche is us. Yes. And we played with the expansion and those stars, man. Those stars. The star pieces. The, the genius about For Science. Yes, there's tiling. Yes, there's special powers. Yes, there's time pressure. Every time I play For Science... I am made to look at the recipe, the, the specific formula that I'm trying to build, the cure that I'm trying to build, and they're like, how do objects work? I have to make uh, manipulate these objects in a new way. And that is a marvel. Especially, like Whether you've been stacking, playing stacking games for 20 years like I have, every time I play for science, I, I have to re-examine these objects, and that is a triumph and a joy. This particular time, what I had to do was take a piece roughly five to eight times longer than the star, perch it on one of its little arms and have it have the star be perched on an uneven surface such that the long beam was touching something else. I spent about five minutes working on that cure and it could have been our downfall or or it could have been led to... I finally finished that sucker and it let us pull the tile that let you finally find the cure. Honestly, I'm going to be remembering that for a while. I mean, yeah. honestly, was it the work of a of, of a of a of a of an insane person? Quite possibly. Maybe I should have just given up early. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the awesomeness that is for science. There's a time pressure because the clock is running. You have these crazy sort of cards that you have to interpret interpret about you know what shapes are touching what. And like you said, you get that to- are clear and deceptive at the same time. Exactly. And like you said, you get to manipulate these pieces however you like. And 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 except and, for those and make- stars. Yeah, I'm getting to that. <laughs> except for the stars, which have to go upright exactly. Just the way call me the pictured. nemesis because I just want yeah, to go stars. Like, oh. Anyway, fantastic. And then on, besides that, when you complete a cure, it's going to tell you how many of these other tiles that you get. And you make this weird spatial puzzle where you have to lock off these snaking amoebas and trap these <laughs> symbols. And that's your objective. You have to get maybe 13, depending on the player or, player or, yeah, or difficulty yeah. you want. You have to trap so many symbols and then you win. Fantastic game for science. And I'd just like to stress, as I've said before, the great thing about one of the, the great thing, one of the many great things about For Science is that, especially in a larger table, you can triage aggressively. Someone wants to deal with card management, they can do that. Someone else wants to just build and do nothing but build, they can do that. Somebody else just wants to play with the little tiles, leave them alone in the tile corner, they can do that. Someone wants to multitask, that's great. I don't think I've ever, uh, the last game we played, I think I made a couple of suggestions about how to move a tile here and there. That's the most I've ever interacted with the tiles in a long time when playing for science. And that's how I like to play it, because it's a tile-laying spatial puzzle, which is what a, is the exact activity that a number of people adore, and I don't want to touch. And so... I, I felt in this case, because it was just a two-player game, it would have been unreasonable for me to be like, Walker, this is exclusively your problem. I felt that would have been not pro-social behavior, and so I decided to try to pull my own weight in that respect. For science, oh, it's so good. So good. <laughs> we don't play it often enough. Given that it's only a 15-minute commitment with a couple of minutes of setup and teardown, and you constantly see something new, if only the only knock against For Science is that it is in a large box. It is a fat boy, P-H-A-T-B-O-I. And consequently, despite the fact that I'd be more than happy to have it punctuate almost any game event, it's not the kind of thing you can just toss into a bag. But it is what it is. For Science by R. Eric Royce, published by Gray Fox Games in 2021. Rumor has it, I don't have any inside information. This is not insider information. 
that there may be a reprint at some point. That would be awesome. It would be awesome. On the subject of Dexterity Games, we played this new one. No one's heard of it before. Paku Paku. Say that again? Paku Paku. This is designed by Anton Boza and put out by Ravensburger. And once again, great times had by all. On the topic of a Dexterity game that can close off any gaming gathering. Always, always drama on the Paku Paku. There was Paku Justice and then there was Paku Injustice. Yeah, there are lots of these claims. Paku Paku seems to have turned a number of people around our table into very strong moral theorists. Now, I say strong in the sense of the intensity, not necessarily of the quality of their analysis. But people seem to have very strong opinions about what justice looks like in the context of Paku Paku. Agreed. Just a marvelous consequence. I believe all holds barred in <laughs> all... You're exaggerating. To the wind it is, is what it I is clear. Paku Paku. I, th- I think we've made uh, heard listeners about this before. Uh, I, I have seen Walker engage in behavior that I'm the first to say is borderline cheating. Now, mostly this is in co-ops that he engages in cheating. But the... the uh, this is a, a classic Rashomon situation where I heard people explain a situation. Cheating is such a harsh word. It, it's a harsh word and it's, it's appropriate. Hand holding <laughs> in co-op games is like what I like to say. Look, the kind of cheating that I'm talking about in co-op games is, so the communication restrictions say that I can't say and then you state something. And then I'm like, Walker. Never happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paku Paku, on the other hand, people have engaged in Paku Paku slander against you. It's awful. Because I've seen the things that they, uh, they describe, and it seems like perfectly fine Paku to me. Anyway. Exactly. Anyway. Paku Paku. Live the controversy. Form your own opinions. Antoine Boza. Delight. On the topic of perennial delights, we also played some missions of the crew. Mission Deep Sea. Had some very, very tough mission draws. We were in a situation once where I had to draft a mission that I really couldn't satisfy because if I didn't draft it, Walker would end up with it. And then he would have ended up with two flatly contradictory missions. Like, I will win no yellows, and I will win the yellow six. It's like, well, we can't do both of those, now can we? So I guess I better take the one that says I'll win the yellow six, despite the fact that I don't have any yellows. All right, let's see how this goes. But it's it's great. You can't, have we ever played any missions from the mission book in Mission Deep Sea Walker? No. I think every time it's been like, oh, let's pick a difficulty, put out some mission cards. The deck's so magical. It is, a ma- it is magical. That is the word for it. It is magical. It is. Just the mere notion that we have all these other campaign missions that we could go to if we were ever inclined, eh, makes me happy. We may never do that. That's true. And that is the crew, Mission Deep Sea, by Thomas Singh and Cosmos 2021. I will happily play the crew, but Mission Deep Sea, I think, is much, much better. All right. Lastly, for me, everyone knows. Does everyone know? People, Some people know. I love G.I. Joe, the deck building game. And guess what, Mark? <laughs> Another expansion, believe it or not. This one is called Raise the Flag Campaign Expansion. And this has everything that the name implies. Does it have a flag? Yes, it's the USS flag. It's, the, it's that aircraft carrier. Oh, so it's a play on words. It is. Okay. It's the F-L-A-G-G. I'm not, I should, that stands for. Anyway, moving on. So the game comes with this giant... That, that's the name of a perennial Stephen King villain, by the way. <laughs> Comes with a <laughs> giant cardboard aircraft carrier that holds that has slots where you you know slide in the special abilities for the aircraft carrier. Place to hold cards. It has little that cardboard airplanes too. It's, it's, yes, it's, I've seen it. It's glorious. It is glorious. <laughs> and 
So we wipe out all of the other expansions, go back to core G.I. Joe. Well, that, that's how you're supposed to play it, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, oh, for sure. So that's what we did. And it comes with secret envelopes. So you're adding secret cards in, which are all very interesting. It, it's almost like a, a marketing scheme because it brings back all of the old vehicles. Almost. Stopping there. <laughs> no more spoilers. Almost like a marketing scheme. Almost. <laughs> it's a licensed tie-in of G.I. Joe. One of the most light, but I mean, easiest exclusives to move product ever. It's true, but I just mean like it. It seems as though it's like back in the eighties, and they're trying to sell you more toys. But you know, there's no toys to buy anymore. Is what I'm trying to get at. It is great. I liked everything Weren't about it. You the one it. talking about a twenty six hundred dollar plastic aircraft carrier? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Am I right? Was it twenty six hundred dollars? I think it was twenty eight. <laughs> oh, I'm very sorry. Oh. I, look, I, I I spend a lot of money on toys, but uh, come on. $2,800. Yep. Woo. It's great. It was this one one thing came up. It, it You know, normally you need like five or six successes. Sure. You roll these dice. You, you bring a bunch of Joes on the mission. This thing happened in the campaign. It says you need 14 successes. Woo. And we succeeded. Well done. And it was high fives all around. So when you have big moments like that in games, it's great. This is designed by TC Petty the Third, same person that did the base game, put up by Renegade Game Studios. I love G.I. Joe deck building. Another one, another uh, yet another expansion coming out soon. I know I say I'm probably gonna skip this one. This one I will probably skip. It is solo for, uh, for solo and sure. it's for a trader mechanism. Both of which, sure, I, I have no. Uh, yeah, you're not big on either of those. Yeah, not big on either of those. So, so during moments of glorious success, it's high fives. During moments of fl- frustration, do you flip the aircraft carrier? Yes, sending the little planes flying, and yeah. we, we uh, launch it into the air and watch yeah. the little planes come down. Okay. Lastly, we have returned to our campaign of My Island. This is the Reiner Knizia campaign game. We are on chapter six, and let me tell you something. Walker was waiting for substantial change up to happen. And without getting into specific spoilers, oh my, the moment I picked up the envelope and I felt how thick it was, <laughs> I knew that we would be in for something. It's basically like, ah, all the previous scoring conditions, gone. Yeah. <laughs> Have a whole bunch of new ones. Here's a new mechanism. Here's a couple other new mechanisms. There you go. Yeah. It was like, they took my statements. You want something new? Well, hold my chits. Watch this. Yeah. It makes me think that they should have doled them out a little more judiciously. I don't object necessarily, but but you were flagging a little, no pun intended, on some of the previous chapters. And this, I think, was a very radical sea change in terms of how the game operates. I think they could have been more judicious with the transition, personally. Agreed. But that having been said, I'm still enjoying my island. It's 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 wonderful. Reiner Knizia knows how to do tile laying. That's there. I said it. I said it. Two controversial opinions this week. Madness. We're in so much trouble. I know. And now we're going to take a brief break while we pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. 
So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Now for the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, I want to thank the Everyday Board Games podcast. That's Daniel and Daniel. They turned me on to, because uh, Huey and I really like a game called Nightfall. It is a sort of, uh, you know, vampire deck building. Don't forget the werewolves. Vampires werewolves, and werewolves. Chaining your cards together. So, uh, and there's... This new game that's coming out is some sort of link. I didn't dive into it. I'm not doing this big expose on on how they're related, but they're related somehow. The publisher is Trick or Treat Studios. They're going to come out with a game called Unchained, designed by David Gregg, and it's somehow based on uh, Nightfall. So looking forward to that, Unchained. So this is a bit of a correction from last week's announcement. I was actually a little bit confused as to when Omen from Small Box Games was going to be on crowdfunding. Uh, it's on crowdfunding now. So it's <laughs> there are three standalone sets that can be integrated with each other, and they're all available on crowdfunding right now, right now. So go ahead and get it. Omen is a very interesting dueling card game where every card has multi-use effects and the powers are gonzo bananas, and I'm very excited to see where the series is going. So, Quacks of Quillenburg, not my favorite game, but we play a lot of two-player here with Butterfly Babe, and they're going to have a dedicated uh, Quacks of Quillenburg dual game, so two-player only. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. I might give it a try. Another bag-building game. People enjoy it. Push your luck. One of my favorite two-player games this year was Votes for Women, published by Fort Circle Games, about the ratification of the 19th Amendment in the United States, giving women the right to vote. Really, really well done, historically driven CDG design that nonetheless is very, very approachable, replete with lots of historical flavor and verisimilitude, coupled with uh, a bunch of really fascinating component choices in terms of really selling home the theme. And the reprint is available on Kickstarter right now. So if you missed out on the first printing of Votes for Women. Women. The second printing is on crowdfunding right now. Highly recommended. Votes for Women. So, Mark, we love German games. We love interesting children's games. And we love magnets. This is true. You've so got my attention. Here we go. It's called... Uh, here's another German game that I'm going to butcher. Sure. It's called Divertil Splunkensche. <laughs> A cooperative game for one to four players. This is by Wolfgang Dershow and Wolfgang Lehmann. And what happens, Mark, it looks like there's some sort of spatial movement. You're moving around this board, and then at some point, you get to turn a crank. And the crank is going to move these magnets underneath the board in some random way because they're hooked onto these ghosts that are on the top of the board. And if the ghosts bump into you, then the gates slowly close down on the outside, and you're trying to get out of this board before the gates close all the way down. I'm there. All right. <laughs> it looks very adorable. And just the fact that you're going to have these ghosts sort of like shimmying around. I think the kids will love it. I think it's going to be a great little ch- children's game. Die 
Vertil Spelunket. Uh, that's awful. I am sorry. Check the episode notes. <laughs> yes. You'll see how it's spelled. Finally, for me, we neglected last time on a multiple of five episode to uh, flog our Patreon, which we reluctantly do every five episodes. We have a Patreon. It is how we are able to uh, maintain doing free media. And it has a whole bunch of bonus content. We release on average about a bonus episode a week. There are a whole bunch of rotating shows. Uh, Sizzler is going to be coming back soon, as will Pledge of Indifference. And Mark and does a great bloat episode every so often where he talks about all sorts of interesting things. Well, I, I talk about things, that is for certain. Past that, uh, some people seem to derive some value from it, and that I very much appreciate. Ad-free episodes, access to the Patreon, you name it. So if you're at all interested in supporting what we do, uh, please do go visit patreon.com slash swag. Lastly, for me, we've got to play Nucleum once so far this year. Hopefully we'll play it more. Uh, an expansion already announced. Nucleum Australia. New map, new missions, new stuff. Nucleum. So that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our topic for the week, which is adventure games. Walker? Here we go. Let's start this off. What is an adventure game? Uh, no, no, be... I don't I don't want to define that in the answer. Okay, fine. If you want to define it in no, the answer, go ahead. Because there's no, there's no real definition. There's yeah, the definition for me and the definition for you. Okay, I'm going to regret this. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to regret this, but you brought it up. In your head, is there a distinction between an adventure game and a dungeon crawl game? Uh, no, well, it depends on the dungeon crawl game. If it's, <laughs> sure. a, if it's a campaign uh-huh. type dungeon crawl system, then uh-huh. it's not an adventure game in my head. But if it's a one shot, it is? Yes. I think that huh. is the key part. Huh. Not the keyest part, but <laughs> it is a key part. <laughs> and and it is something like that, that what the uh, campaign games sort of define for me what an adventure game is, right? Because campaign uh, dungeon crawlers or adventure games go on and on, and you have to keep track, and you have to bring them back to the table. Uh-huh. Whereas adventure games is this one game you get to do whatever you want because it's going to be it's going to be over, and there's no sure. no long term hmm. ramifications. It's just a, a one and done fun experience. Okay, I mean I'm I'm happy to go along with with that as a as a working definition. In in my head, when I use the terms. I don't necessarily think that a campaign element is a necessary or sufficient condition for it being or not being an adventure game. But to my mind, if it is a constrained uh, location, if it's just like one place and you're going to be doing something, there's no traveling involved, there's no journeying, there's no map that you're going across. Uh, if it's a purely tactical, enclosed environment where all you're doing is, is well, all, almost all you're doing is killing things, I tend to think of that more as its own separate kind of thing. But again, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm more than happy to uh, to discuss. Well, that's what I mean. That's what I mostly, I've mostly done. I've listed a bunch of games that I think, you know, are all on, on different areas of the spectrum, and we can talk about why we think they are or are not adventure games. Well, I'd, more, I'd, I'd rather more focus on the fact that, uh, hot take, uh, most adventure games I don't like. Oh. Well, so... Here... <laughs> well, let's just keep going on what we're going. Okay. I, I really feel as though there should be some sort of progression or... or uh, Character some, development? Yeah, a, like a life advancement type thing. You know what I mean? Like, like this character used to be like this, and, uh-huh. and now it's like this. Like I took them on this journey. Sure, they 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 changed, <laughs> and then they came home realizing that they were not the same person anymore. And yeah, and there's a story sort of start to finish. There's yep. sort of like a prologue, and you, you know, and a, and a climax, and then an end. 
Yeah, it, it, actually, that is another way to, I think, get at the distinction that I was trying to draw. The emphasis on narrative is often one of the things that differentiates, or not even narrative, but story, uh, that differentiates an adventure game from a dungeon crawl game. Typically speaking, the story in a dungeon crawl game is there was this door, we kicked it open, and we murdered everything on the other side, and we rifled through their bodies. Whereas in an adventure game, typically, you might there might be dungeons involved, there might be kick, doors to kick down and people to murder, uh, but typically there's some attempt or gesture towards some broader story that's going on. And so on that, on that sort of on that vein, sometimes I'm wondering if mechanics get in the way of that. I think yep. with successful adventure games, they are usually uh, very basic, right? Sure. You roll a few dice, wound, you know, defense, move on. It's very story driven. It's, uh, you know, has other aspects than, than concentrating on the mechanics of the game. Okay. Well, could you give me an example? That's what I mean. I'm wondering if like Mage Knight, we're going to say Mage Knight is an adventure game. I think it is. But I wonder if you get bogged down in the rules or a game like Clank where, uh, the, the, the rules aren't, uh, uh, difficult or, or huge, but they're, it's such a, just a, it, it makes you think of it more of as a, as a game than as an adventure. Mm. Well, that's fair. I And you're right. Uh, trying to emphasize the fact that there's some... Mage Knight, to me, is an adventure game more based on the fact that you're you know, there's the sense of voyage and going places, right? Uh, which kind of contradicts my gesture toward... There's no narrative in Mage Knight. In point of fact, in the rulebook, in the explanation for the setting, there's they are great pains to emphasize... Why are these semi-immortal badasses doing what they're doing? We don't know. They just showed up and started killing things. They're awfully frightening. And that's more or less the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing really compelling you except, you know, game mechanics say sure. that you must, you know, de- defeat X by the end. There's right. no sort of, you know, grand adventure. There's just, you know, get this done or you lose. But there's a sense of scope, right? True. There's this idea that you're you know, conquering castles, plural, and you're burning down this village or, or, or sacking this monastery, and then you go and you kill everything in a city, and you... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm making it sound bloody because it is. <laughs> and, again, getting from point A to point B is is part of the challenge of a game of Mage Knight. And when I think of, of most other, you know, more tactical, skirmish-adjacent things, or, or things. I, I don't tend to think of, of, of treating movement or scope or scale in the same way. But that's one of the way, one of the reasons why I think Mage Knight is a good example from the polar opposite. When I think of, of like two extreme opposite poles of really successful adventure games, I think of Mage Knight on one end, and on the other hand, I think of Legacy of Dragonhold, right? Legacy of Dragonhold has like practically no game mechanisms whatsoever. It doesn't even have a system for skills. It's just a bunch of keywords that say, oh, do you have this keyword? Read this paragraph. The paragraph based on herbalism or survival or runes or whatever it happens to be. And there, I, you know, I associate with the story. I associate with the characters. Mage Knight, I don't associate with the story. I don't associate with the characters. I associate with the mechanisms. So I think they're both very, very successful at doing a similar kind of thing, but in very different ways. Yeah, and that's sort of getting to the point that I was going to make is that I feel good adventure games sort of bring you along on the journey where Mage Knight just sort of says, here's the map, off you go, <laughs> right? There's no sort of direction on where you need to go. You know you right. need to get out there, but but whereas in other adventure games, it's like, oh, you need to find this clue or you need, you know, right. you find this murder or, you know, this first boss will lead to the next boss. Yep. You know, it's all connected. Well, I think that's one of the challenges of doing story well in board games. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many adventure games fail. 
Like, think back to the last one that we played that neither of us enjoyed at all, and that's the Witcher adventure game, right? It had all these encounters, but you couldn't get attached to any of the characters, and indeed, the writing didn't even really try to make any of the characters interesting, not even your own PCs, because there wasn't enough meat to hang on the bones. It was a series of stochastic, unrelated little things that had like very vaguely fantasy flavor. You, you heal this noble's daughter, and he gives you three monies. And yeah, it's completely random go, off the deck. Yeah, it's yeah. not only well, not only is it random, but there's no ability to to to, to chain them all together to make any sort of sense out of any of all anything here. Yeah. And consequently, we didn't like the story. We didn't feel connected to it. We couldn't connect to the characters or the world, and the mechanisms weren't satisfying in and of themselves. So again, I appreciate an approach like Mage Knight that says, eh, forget the story. I'm just going to, we're here for the mechanisms or something. This is a false dichotomy, of course. Or Dragon Hell that says, eh, mechanisms, who needs them? I've got the story I want to tell and I'm going to do enough to make you feel like you're controlling it. But this is absolutely about selling a setting and characters and, and, uh, and, and a world. I feel a lot of these were sort of derived from, from the granddaddy, right? We have Talisman. Yep, exactly. It started off and it, it sort of like runs that line that, I was talking about, it's like, go get a talisman. Yep. Then go beat the boss. Right. So yeah. it was sort of like led you along the way. Right. Yeah. Was, there was a, a mid goal and then the climax at the end. Yeah. Right. I made kind of a gesture towards this. when talking about mage Knight. So many adventure games, uh, talisman does this mage Knight does this. Uh, the witcher does this prophecy. Vladikavatl's first fantasy adventure game, which was basically a souped up talisman does this as well. You have to make some sort of gut check where am I ready to go kill the thing yet? And it is seldom straightforward, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of adventure games tend to drag. Because when you're a new player, not only are you playing suboptimally and therefore it takes longer, you don't know when you're ready, and so it takes longer. By the time you know what you're doing, I don't know, half a dozen games into something, things might go really quick, but by then you've already played the game when it drags, and so how likely are you to come back to it? I mean, Talisman was infamous for lasting too long for other reasons as well, but part of it was just not knowing when you were ready to go do the thing. I also think, going back even further, oh, what the hell, this, this is this is going to be the episode where I say a whole bunch of controversial things. Do you know who I blame? Who do you blame, Mark? I blame Tolkien. Because Tolkien established, it's kind of a victim of your own success, right? Tolkien established, in many ways, the Ur-Fantasy formula, right? Which is about wandering along and weird things happening to you, right? The, call it the Tom Bombadil model, right? So many fantasy adventure games in the, the modern board game hobby are married to the Tom Bombadil model. It's like, go to this node and pull a card, and the card says something happens. It's like, oh. And you try to put in character and flavor that way. But let me tell you, you don't have as much character and flavor as Tolkien did. Wasn't my favorite writer, but he knew what he was doing. So you end up with the same model of wandering around semi-aimlessly. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't just walk to the the mound and throw it in the ring. Yeah. And then and the story ends. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all yeah. the cool stuff that happens on the journey there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know that board games are really good at doing that as a rule. Again, I think of, of the, the adventure games that I think are successful. Some of the other ones, that the, the ones I mentioned, are things like Doomrock. And Doomrock is mostly just making fun of other <laughs> fantasy tropes, right? And then it's focused on a very intricate combat system. And so it kind of seeks to bridge the gap between the more tactical skirmishy dungeon crawls and the more sprawling adventure games. There's an overland map, sure, but it's abstracted, and then you get into this very interesting combat system. The same is true for what it's worth of Too Many Bones, which I also think is reasonably successful. It has these weird little scattershot, unconnected little vignettes, but they're presented as, you know, 
vaguely humorous. The humor is kind of hit or miss, but most of your focus is not about traveling from place to place. You're on a, like a fixed path to get progress points, and it's about these tactical combats. And so again, it's like, we are going to give you enough mechanisms to, to, to be satisfied by, and not instead focus on wandering around and weird things happening to you and deciding whether you're ready to take on the boss yet. Well, I'm going to throw in Robinson Crusoe, Adventures on the Cursed Island, because they give you straight-up goals. Mm, You know, get this much wood, get this, and then all of the crazy stuff that happens to you on the way. It's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh... Adventure by way of Euro management. Yeah, Yeah. it's starting to rain. It's like, okay, well, we need to build a hut. It's like, oh, you got cold. Put this card in the deck. And it's like, why? why? What's that going to (laughs) do? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I'm so much looking forward to playing more of that, because we have another one coming in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to that. You're right, because adventure, again, the, the the model that we have of adventure is there's some giant evil that's going to destroy the land, right? So many adventure games are fantasy or science fiction, and it's all about some great evil, and not about, like, it's raining and you're cold. Uh, this War of Mine tried to do the same thing. This War of Mine is also kind of in the, in, in the, the adventure mold. I don't think it was very, very good at selling... Uh, the horrors of war. It mostly sold to me the tedium of scrounging for for twigs. Uh, I think Robinson Crusoe was more successful at that. Uh, but you're right. I, I think that the ones that really uh, don't fall into the standard adventure tropes to the same extent uh, often have more success. Now, we haven't really talked about it yet, but do you think uh, either cooperative or all going towards the same goal, but, you know, coming with a score at the end or or having a uh, a game master, do you think any of these are essential to a good adventure game? Essential is a strong word. I mean, my my default intuition in these kinds of structures games is co-op. And if you think about it, all the games that I listed, like my four favorite adventure games, they're all co-op or the way that I prefer to play them in the case of Mage Knight is co-op. Partially, I think, just thematically. Like this idea that there's a big evil in the world or there's some evil in the world that a lot of them do, but but you're all scrabbling amongst each other as to who's going to defeat it the best. That's so bizarre and well, petty. Yeah. Well, I always talk about when we talk about these post, post-apocalyptic yeah. games or any yeah. of these other games, like, well, we could cooperate, but, you know, why would we do that? That would make things so much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like you're you're competing to see who's going to be remembered the best a hundred years. Ugh, I don't know. It's it's a it's a justification. And honestly, like so many games in the hobby sphere are premised on the flimsiest of thematic justifications as it is. I don't know why this one bothers me more than most, but it does. So all things being equal, I do prefer co-op, and I don't like having to have someone be a game master. The whole one be all thing, ugh, it's really hard to do. And other than level seven Omega Protocol, I'm I'm more or less done with the sort of one v all dungeon crawly thing. But again, I I don't think of that as an adventure in the same way. Yeah, I have that further down my list. I was wondering if I could sell you on Space Hulk as an adventure game, but that falls into the, <laughs> that falls into trope as is, as in the one dungeon. But, but you're just calling it that because of the tagline on the box. It does say. Uh, uh, adventure role play, but I want, uh, but uh, I wasn't just putting it out there for for no reason. Yeah. How about games that have uh, like like uh, Space Hulk that have so much theme, yeah, and so much feeling of of pressure and, and sure and key moments and and that sort of feel to it. I think is that enough to promote it to an adventure type? Game? Okay. At this point, we're quibbling about like are, this is I mean, really splitting hairs about definitions. I will grant you that Space Hulk gets a lot closer than a lot of those other ones. Uh, to me, it doesn't necessarily do it because it's not so much a story as it is selling a vibe. It sells the vibe really well, right? 
But in very much the same way that Meltwater sells a vibe. Meltwater doesn't sell a narrative, it sells a vibe. And to my mind, that's, that's enough of a difference. But again, the, I, I really don't care about these decisions at this point. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm wondering if Space Hulk, because we know the, the past and the lore of it, and so... I don't really. Well, a, enough of it to know what's going on. Whereas I know that there are people... Fresh in might There are people no in armor, and they're really stupid, and they're basically fascistic power worshippers, and they go and do a dumb thing that's very dangerous. Have I, have I got it? You got it. Okay. Uh... <laughs> All right, let's, let's go on to the next one. How how can I how can I sell you on uh, the quest for El Dorado? All right, so you are traversing. Oh wow, you are traversing across a map. Okay, you, you, yeah, you you're can, hoisting you, me on my own petard you can, there. You, right? can, you can make the argument that you, as you're building your deck, you're sort of making your character better. Ooh, no, no, right? you lost me on that one. Keep going. And and you're like going through traps, and and you're going through sure. boats, and you're on and you're on sort of adventure to get you know Indiana Jones style to get sure. to get. You know, treasure and other things. Yeah, no, no, I don't no. think so. I, I, <laughs> the, <laughs> the setting is very much in service of the mechanisms, and it's on, true. Yeah, it's one of these things, much like Clank, where it's just, it's a race. Yeah, it's like it, it it doesn't even pretend as though the journey is part of anything other than just a race. Yeah, and so at that point, I'm not really like similarly, uh, Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark, if anything, is closer to me to an adventure game, and even that that, that doesn't really constitute because they're yeah, it's a race, but it does a better job of selling the, the 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 setting that you're racing through, right? But the quest for El Dorado is more or less devoid of what I would call the sort of adventure personality. It's still a marvelous game, but I I I I would actually put that closer if if you asked me to plot, uh, you know, Talisman or whatever other classic adventure game. Uh, or Formula Day, and ask me which which one Quest for El Dorado is. I'd say it's closer to Formula Day. <laughs> gotcha. All right. How about Die 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 Die? Sorry, Cthulhu. Death may die. Ooh, nah, not really. I don't know really? why, but eh. it's a, it's a one off. Um, it's got a story. Again, the one off doesn't doesn't do it for me. It can be a campaign for me, and it can and it can still be an adventure game. It does have a story. But again, the story is mostly about foolish people doing something very foolish. <laughs> it's closer to Space Hulk than I thought it was. <laughs> no, but again, I mean, at this point, we're splitting hairs. Like, uh, the in like, is Cthulhu: Death May Die a game that is very good at selling a particular kind of vibe? That is very good at uh, selling a very uh, very particular kind of setting and being subversive about that setting while giving you a satisfying uh, set of mechanical interactions. Yes. Does it necessarily fit in the adventure game bucket or not? At that point, I don't really care. Yeah, I think Champions. Of, I've, I'm going through. There's a list of adventure games too on Board Game Geek. So some of these, oh, but those categories like, are so broad. They are. Yeah, but I pulled some like okay. key ones. Like, I, I I can almost make an argument for uh, Champions of Midgard. Oh boy! Right, you, you're sending your Vikings Vikings off to kill monsters, and you're collecting the dice, and it's sort of a you know, okay, kind of adventure. Let's move on. <laughs> Android, Netrunner, not Netrunner, just Android. The original Android. Original Android. Yeah, I never played it. I, I don't know. So you definitely have character advancement, and it's very dark. That's true. Right, and you're and you're oh, yeah. you're you're traversing all over the map. It it's could, true. It you could, run all it, around the city. It and, could yeah. fall into that you know mechanical thing where it's just a bunch of mechanisms that bring you on that journey. But yeah, I, I one could similarly make the argument for Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. I mean, mysteries are kind of an adventure, and it's it's primarily narrative driven, and very much like Dragonhold, it lets the mech, you know it doesn't focus on the mechanisms at the exclusion of anything else. You might, by virtue of the criteria you've already elucidated, rule it out on the basis that there's no character advancement. But again, at that point, we might be splitting hairs. 
Return to Dark Tower, I think, is very much an adventure game. Oh. It's an interesting hybrid. Yeah. yeah the, the app brings It's awfully you, adventure yeah. Yeah, yeah. The app brings you on a journey. It definitely tells a story. There's midpoints where you're, you, you know, you're killing the, the sub-bosses yep. and working your way up to the main boss. Oh, no, you're right. And... And but not, but not in the sort of gut check way. You're kind no. of it, it, it's 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 a good mix. You're right. It's a good mixture of structure and freedom, such that it's it's kind of selling. And like the 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 villain shows up and acts with a certain degree of personality at various points. Yeah, it's a good point. You're right. It's 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 very a very good modification of some of the like standard pandemic tropes in a slightly more adventurous way. That's well put. And there's an old game called Rune Wars that I think is a, another like you said hybrid old. Of- Super ancient of a of a <laughs> hybrid adventure game. It was because even though there's a troops on the map, yeah, there is your leaders going out on these crazy adventures while all this chaos is happening and these huge battles are being <laughs> fought. Your leaders are going into dungeons and they're and they're getting items and they're coming back to lead some battles and they're and they're doing all sorts of other things and it, it does gives you the it does give you this larger scope of this whole world evolving as I, you're going along. I did like the interaction of those two different levels. A lot of people found it very frustrating that you couldn't you know send your armies to go hunt someone else's hero. I thought it was fine. But I don't know that it really sells the setting the way you're talking about. For me, it was just the juxtaposition of the two scales that I found interesting. The actual adventuring portions felt an awful lot like the kind of adventure stuff that I've been criticizing, the stochastic random nonsense where you just pull a card and something happens and you pass a check or you don't. True, but in the scope of the game, I think that's I think that's the right level. That's fair. I mean, that, that I think is an example to add a, a little dash, a touch, a soupçon, a sprinkle a skosh of a skosh of of the adventuriness to an otherwise elaborated troops on a map game, but I, I don't know that I would necessarily feel comfortable, therefore, calling it an adventure game as opposed to a game of adventure. Why are you making me split all these hairs, Walker? Why are you doing I, this to me? I don't know. I don't because <laughs> I find it interesting. Okay, good. I'm glad. And the only I have one other one here because it's one that we both played, and that was Old Tree. Old Tree. Old Tree. Very beautiful. Very beautiful looking game. Yep. Uh, had some parts where it seemed a little too light for its its uh, sort of theme. I wasn't sure who, who what the game who the game was made for. Well, I think it was made for families. I think it was yes. a family weight game. Uh, my my key opposition to Otre was that uh, nothing. It, it, what I was doing wasn't very interesting, and there was a lot of skip a turn me- mechanisms, and there was a lot of just you know stockpiling stuff for. Uh, for for events that might whack you upside the head, but yeah, it, it definitely was attempting to give a sort of a story structure to what was going on, and it did have a, a sort of adventure feel, uh, despite the fact that it was fundamentally kind of a siege setup. Yeah, it, and definitely sold a world. I mean, the art was glorious, and it, it it injected a lot of personality into those things. I just found the gameplay very very dull. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, this is just reinforcing my my generalized opinion. Like, it's really really hard to do both mechanistically heavy and satisfyingly narrative. I mean, the one the one counterexample that I might offer, and this is only a very tentative one, is, is the old Magic Realm. Magic Realm, was, you know, back from the 70s, it gave you a sense of narrative in the same way that a lot of uh, roguelike games do. Namely, there's a huge universe of things that might happen, and weird happenstances and circumstances that might occur such that the plays become memorable and injected with some degree of personality. And so just the, the, the sheer variety of the universe takes on a life of its own. But 
again, mostly when I play Magic Realm, it's it's for the mechanisms. So you're looking for a heavier mechanism adventure game. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is, is that I don't know if it's possible to make a game that could be as mechanically satisfying as something like Mage Knight and as narratively satisfying as something like uh, uh, Legacy of Dragonhold. I don't know if I don't know if that's doable. Sorry, let me rephrase that. It seems very hard to do, and I haven't encountered. I've yet to see it. Yeah, yeah. While you're talking there, I was thinking about the micro macro and wondering if that's a type of adventure game because you know what I was thinking that too. Yeah, tells this elaborate story. I think it does and brings you along. And despite the fact that you're not a character in the story, there's enough of a story that you know the the sheer discovery of the elements feels like you're being brought along on this great adventure. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think micro macro, uh, kind of like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, is an example of how the mystery format can feel like an adventure if gamified properly. I agree entirely. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information as well as a wealth of other information at SoWrongGames.com. Make sure you come and tell us, you know, what your favorite adventure games are and how we got it so, so very wrong. Yeah, because we haven't heard that joke before. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for deciding to spend some time with us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.